Well, hello, and welcome to the Jeff MacArthur Podcast for this Tuesday, November the 3rd, also known as Election Day in the United States. Coming up, we, of course, will talk U.S. election. Some faith leaders in the U.S. working at polls throughout that country to try to de-escalate the potential for campaign violence. And Premier Ford unveils a new tiered system for COVID-19 restrictions. All of that coming up next, right here on the podcast. Well, lots of hand-wringing right now in the U.S., not only over the election, but what the reaction to the election could be. Businesses, as I'm sure you have seen on the news, they've boarded up their windows in major U.S. cities over the fear of violence and riots. However, there are a number of U.S. religious leaders who are trying to de-escalate the situation there today. One of those is the Reverend Dr. Susan K. Smith, who joins us now from Ohio here on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Reverend, good afternoon. Appreciate you joining us on this Election Day. Good afternoon. It's good to be here. Okay, first of all, uh, what is the mood like in uh, Columbus where you are this afternoon This afternoon on this Election Day? You know, it's interesting. There's an eerie calm. There's an eerie calm. I, I can't even explain it. We were out. I was out this morning going from poll place to poll place. And right now, at least up to this point, the lines have been very, very short. And maybe that's because, you know, there was so much early voting. But um, there's just a calm. It's weird. It's almost like it feels um, like when you're in the eye of the storm and people, when you're in the eye and and it's so calm and people think the storm is over, that's what it feels like. Okay, I was going to ask you, is it calm or just the calm before the storm? I mean, do you sense that there is a potential for a flare-up for violence uh, there in Columbus or uh, elsewhere in the country? I, I do feel that. We just got to, actually, we just got to note that there may be one of those those Trump caravan train things that are coming through this afternoon. I, I, I shudder to think that um, the possibility for uh, violence or at least a lot of intimidation might come later on in the day. We just don't feel like it's over. You know, it's just it just doesn't feel... It doesn't feel like everything is as it normally is on Election Day. I don't think any of us have ever worried about there being violence on an Election Day. Tell us a bit about uh, why you and other faith leaders have taken up the cause, uh, what you're doing today, and what is your message to voters? Well, we're taking up the cause because, you know, violence does not work. And um, we don't, we didn't want, we started doing this with Reverend Joan and I have been working on this together. We started doing it because um, there were a number of people expressing anxiety. They didn't even know if they wanted to to go to early voting. And so we decided that we needed to train people um, to de-escalate. Joan and I, both Joan and I did de-escalation training in our work with the um, Poor People's Campaign. And so we decided that we would use some of the techniques that we use there for for this particular time. And so what we did is we gathered um, clergy persons and social workers um, primarily and and gave them, it was a quick training because we didn't, we didn't pick up the anxiety until we were done doing all the training for voter registration and, and early voting, but we just picked it up that there was something just wasn't quite right. So it was a quick training. We did, I think, five trainings, I don't remember, trained over 200 people. And, um, we trained them in nonviolent direct action, the things that you um, that we that were taught to people during the civil rights movement of the '60s, because people had to learn how to take violence, be it physical or verbal. They had to learn how to take it and not retaliate. And so we, we expressed to them 
what was expressed to people during the civil rights movement that nonviolence and nonviolent reaction or nonviolent work is an act of love and that we were called not to um, to to fight against people but to fight but but to fight against the forces of evil that make people do what they do so it's been a pretty interesting um it's been a pretty interesting series of classes that we've done. You know, people kind of look at you like you've got two heads when you say act of love. You know, when you're thinking about, you know, trying to to listen to somebody who's just being obnoxious and hateful. Um, so we had to put, put people through scenarios. We had to get them to identify what their triggers are so that they could anticipate um, already what they would do and how they would do it and how they would say it if their triggers were pushed. And we also made sure that these peacekeepers would go out on the lines in pairs. Nobody was to go alone. So Mm -hmm. it's interesting. It's it's very interesting. People seem to... um, you know, so far there hasn't there haven't been any reports of somebody you know calling to, oh my God they got sick to my triggers and I didn't know what to do. There hasn't been anything like that. Yeah, but sorry to interrupt, Reverend, but we're short on time, and I just want to ask you in our remaining minute, uh, as you well know, I'm sure one of the hallmarks of democracy is the peaceful transfer of power. And what do you think, and what is your fear that uh, that will say about America if that fails to happen when a winner is uh, declared eventually here? Uh, I think it's a, I don't know, I, I don't even know how to say it. It, it is, it, it speaks to a, a weakness, um, a deathly weakness in our democracy if that doesn't happen. And I'm disturbed not only because it may happen, but because there don't seem to be enough people from the Republican Party that would fight against it. So that's what I think. All right. Well, stay safe and appreciate your time on this election day. Thank you so much. Take good care. You as well. There's the Reverend Dr. Susan K. Smith, who is joining us from Columbus, Ohio, this afternoon. Trying to use, as you just heard, there's some de-escalation tactics with the voters in in line today and try to quell what has been the threat of uh, violence in face of uh, election results due in the U.S. today, tomorrow, maybe in the uh, next week. Okay, Election Day in the U.S. Big question, will Donald Trump get four more years? Will Joe Biden finally win the presidency? He first put his name forward, what, back in the uh, late 80s? Well, we are about to find out. And notice I did not say find out shortly, because there is a thought that this might not be Election Day in the U.S., but maybe just maybe, who knows, Election Month. And joining us now for more is Bruce Heyman, former U.S. ambassador to Canada, author of the book, The Art of Diplomacy. And he joins us now here on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Bruce, good afternoon. Appreciate your time. Hey, it's a pleasure. Good afternoon on this election day in the USA. Okay, do you believe it is going to be a day? Give us your take first off here. Do you think that we're in for a long night or could this be days, weeks before we know? Look, I think at the end of the day, every vote counts. Every vote needs to be counted before we can declare a victor. That being said, there are so many paths for a Biden victory because of the more than 100 million ballots that have already been voted. And we have a really good sense of who has voted and what kind of votes that they have made, even though, you know, there's a secret ballot. People have told us in polling how they've actually voted. And I was just on the phone with the campaign and we were walking through a number of different options for Vice President Biden for tonight. 
And I have to tell you that there are a number of pathways to 270. That's the number of electoral college votes that are needed to win. There are a number without Florida and Pennsylvania. And I know everybody's focusing on Florida and Pennsylvania, but now because of so many pathways have been opened up that uh, Joe can win and he can win out without those two states. Now, I think he's still going to win those two states, but we're going to have, this is what's going to happen. Early in the evening, we're going to start getting results from Florida, from North Carolina, from Georgia. I would look at those three states early in the evening. Okay. If any of those three states go for Joe Biden, it's going to be a very difficult path then for Donald Trump. Because all three of those states were red states the last time around. Georgia, in particular, hasn't gone for, for a, a Democrat since Jimmy Carter. And North Carolina, more traditionally a red state, even though um, Barack Obama had some success there. The, the reality is that if any of those three states go early, you know it's going to be a good night. If all three of those, then it's going to be a tsunami. If none of those, it's still not over, and there's still a lot of paths, then it's going to be, a, I think, a much longer time. Yeah, I think a lot of folks, their sense is either this is going to end quickly and it's going to be a landslide a win for a Joe Biden, if you want to believe the polls, or it's going to be a bitter uh, dogfight that's going to stretch on not only into the night, but uh, again, maybe over the next few days. Yeah, and that's not unusual. I mean, most of these states, remember, this isn't a federal election uh, run by the federal government. It's a federal election run by state governments. And each of these states have different sets of rules. Like Florida, they'll count all of these ballots and have been counting all the mail-in ballots all the way along. So tonight, we will get the results of Florida really quickly. Whereas Pennsylvania, they weren't allowed to count any of those ballots until today. And some of the big counties in Pennsylvania have said, we're not going to even count them till tomorrow. So those are strong Republican counties trying to disrupt things a little bit. But the fact of the matter is, if Donald Trump declares an early victory tonight, just assume that's just like he has uh, declared an early cure to COVID. I mean, it's just made up. Well, let me ask you, sorry to interrupt, but let me ask you about that, because that was one question I had for you, because there has been a lot of speculation that Donald Trump might send some sort of victory tweet out before the results are official. Uh, what do you think that would do to the electoral process? Uh, hopefully nothing. Hopefully that, you know, people take it for just another one of his crazy tweets. I mean, it was just a week and a half ago that he sent, or a couple of weeks ago, that he sent out a tweet declassifying all Russian investigations. I hereby declare, as president, this declassified. So the plaintiffs in, a, in one of those cases went to the judge and said, the president just declassified all this. We'd like to see these documents. The White House had to come out and say, you know, he didn't really mean that. That wasn't really the words of the president. You shouldn't take that as an order. And so he, he just is a, is a liar, and we know that. And so it, it is just, you know, we're just going to have to dismiss it and continue to let the voting process go on. Do you think, though, that that is possible, Bruce? Because, I mean, we've seen over the last uh, four years President Trump uh, attack the media, try to delegitimize uh, the media, quote-unquote fake news. 
now doing that to the electoral process. And if he sends a tweet out like that claiming victory, and it is not a victory, according uh, you know to those that count the, <laughs> count to the uh, actual ballots, there is still uh, those Trump followers that are going to believe him and that the uh, election was rigged. Yeah, but all of those are watching one news network. I will tell you that I believe in um, the independence and credibility of every other news network, newspaper, um, wire service. Nobody's going to follow that bait. And so AP, Reuters, NPR, Washington Post, New York Times, CNN, MSNBC, CBS, ABC, not going to happen. And so only one network may, you know, tout that. But I think it's it's just going to be just another one of those Trump protestations. If he does do that, if he tweets victory before it's uh, official, is that even allowed? I mean, can he claim freedom of expression or freedom of speech? Because, you know, we have certain rules in our country, in Canada, when it comes to campaigning on uh, Election Day and, you know, commercials, that sort of thing can't run. And that uh, traditionally, you know, the candidates, particularly the leaders, sort of back off and let the process uh, happen. He has not demonstrated any adherence to the rule of law so far, so I don't anticipate that changing. But that wouldn't be something, if he did that, that would be considered, uh, I don't know, some kind of electoral offense? No, I don't believe so. I think he can say whatever he wants. Uh, Concessions and acceptance speeches in and of themselves are not uh, formally part of uh, the electoral process. The, the, the electoral process is decided by the votes. The votes then determine who are the um, elect, where the electors for the Electoral College will vote. The Electoral College then votes. I believe that votes in December, and they will determine who the next president is. All right. Speaking of votes, you mentioned earlier the advanced polling, and it's incredible. 100 million advanced votes are cast. What does that uh, tell us? I mean, first, uh, obviously, that there's an enormous interest uh, in this election uh, in the U.S., but does that tell us anything, really, do you think, about the results? I know the traditional thinking is that if there's a big advanced turnout, that there's an appetite for change. I think your latter point is valid. 26 million of the votes of the 100 million that voted did not vote in 2016. Eight million of those votes never voted before. And so what you what you have here is an engagement of people in our democracy at a level that we have never seen. And then people come to me and say, so what what positive thing has Donald Trump done? I think what Donald Trump's done is made everybody aware that our democracy is fragile and that if you want to keep it, you've got to fight for it and you've got to vote. We we could. We could see upwards of 70 percent of the eligible voters in America actually voting, and that would be a huge number. That, that, that could be a historic high and the largest number of people ever to have voted. And youth, huge turnout of young people and people of color and women, I think, will be the backstory here. I think women have um, turned their back regardless of party have turned their back on Donald Trump and said enough is enough. 
Is there a concern, though, even though there's 100 million advanced votes, and again, generally that signals an appetite for change, that uh, perhaps, uh, you know, Donald Trump is a very energized base, as we know, or we see them uh, turn out even despite the fact uh, that there's a pandemic and COVID looms and that there are a lot of Trump supporters that are hesitant to, to tell pollsters or anybody else that they actually do support Donald Trump? There's some evidence that that occurred, that they were hesitant to say they supported Donald Trump in 2016. So we called those the shy Trump supporters. And they were people who look like Democrats, sound like Democrats, or registered Democrats, and then went in and pulled the, the Trump button or circle or cast that vote. I think the opposite is happening now. And we're seeing huge recognition of a number of Republicans who found so much of his behavior distasteful that they are not going to vote for him, but they're not going to tell their spouse or partner. They're not going to tell their friends. They're not going to tell their community. And they're going to quietly go do that. So I think you might have the reverse of that happening here. All right. Uh, just finally, uh, one of the hallmarks of democracy, of course, uh, Bruce, as you well know, is the peaceful transfer of power. But there's been reports over the last uh, week of many businesses in many major cities, such as New York and Los Angeles, uh, boarding up their windows. There's the fear of uh, violence and the fear of uh, rioting, uh, whatever the outcome uh, might be, either later tonight or down the road. What does that say about America and where it's at if we fail to see a peaceful transfer of power when this election is over? I think a lot of that, a lot, not all, but a lot of that will fall on the shoulders of Donald Trump. He encouraged and celebrated people trying to run off the Harris-Biden bus. He encouraged people to block the highways in New Jersey and New York. He encouraged people to stand up and go against the governor of Michigan with his language and style. He celebrated a, a, a young man who went from Illinois to Wisconsin to shoot people, which is ridiculous. And he called people on both sides of Charlottesville, fine people when, when many of them were spewing racist hate and Nazi flags and Confederate flags. There weren't fine people there. And so he and his language have encouraged this, talks about the Second Amendment as code language for people to get your guns. And so it's scary. It's a dangerous thing for a president to do. And if he calls on, quote, unquote, his people to rise up and to do these things, it could create a very dangerous environment. So I would call on Donald Trump, regardless of outcome, to stand up and and uh, tell everybody that we need to now come together as a country. We have a new leader that will be elected. And if he wins, I hope he repudiates some of this language that he's used in the past. Well, it goes without saying, we, along with the rest of the world, are and will be watching with interest as the results start to come in. Bruce, I really appreciate the time uh, with us and the perspective here this afternoon. Thanks so much. Pleasure. Be healthy, everyone. You as well. That is Bruce Heyman, former U.S. ambassador to Canada and author of the book, The Art of Diplomacy. And let's get to the latest on today's COVID headlines. Infectious disease expert Dr. Suman Chakrabarti joins us here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Doctor, good afternoon. Welcome back to the show. 
Thanks so much. Great to be here. All right. A new COVID framework unveiled by the province last hour. Instead of stage one, two, and three, we're going with a, it seems like the colors of a uh, traffic light, but they've got it broken down into things such as, uh, I'm sorry, I want to get this right here. Yeah. Uh, Lockdown, red control, orange restrict, yellow protect, green prevent. Is this making things clearer, do you think? Uh, What's your take on this new framework? This framework is interesting. It's actually something that's been used by other countries, and most recently it was uh, actually just uh, on Twitter all over uh, South Korea was doing something very similar to this. I think, yeah, it is more complicated for sure, but at least one thing about it is that it's somewhat more transparent. There's actually numbers. There's actually, uh, you know, what the uh, government is using as the criteria to move from stage to stage. And certainly this helps because, as we know, restrictions affect people uh, in ways more than just health. And I think it's good that transparency is there. Now let's see if it works in practice. Yeah, I'm just wondering if it would have been simpler to go with like a traffic light. Green means go, yellow is we're in a caution area, red's a no-go, and then we all know what uh, lockdown is. They've added an additional color with orange, and is it going to get confusing? Because, for example, when you want to go to indoor dining in an orange uh, area, I think it's maybe six people at a table, but, uh, you know, if you head to a red area, it's only four, and uh, whether or not all of those different variances are really going to be comprehensible for average people. I, I, absolutely. Although I, I will say one thing is that with the transparency, I think there's a bit of a trade-off, right? So uh, if you have this chart uh, available, you know, it's kind of somewhat easy to, to post this so people can read what's going on and have an idea of what's going on in the region. Yeah, you're definitely right. It's more complicated, but at least with that transparency, people have a better idea of what's going on, why things are being done the way they are. And I think that's going to be helpful overall. Ten months in, and a lot of people are still confused about what's, what's happening. Sure. Let me ask you, when you when we talk about transparency, the provincial government also, doctor, announced today a new dashboard. Essentially, you can go to their uh, website and get uh, numbers and, you know, I guess real-time updates, if you will, on the COVID situation uh, in the province. Should this have been out sooner, do you think? I think so. I think, uh, again, I, uh, the theme of today's conversation is transparency. I think knowing what the data is, having something that's easily accessible. Even me as a doctor, as an infectious disease doctor, I found it sometimes difficult to access this information, and I had to do it on people that are, you know, compiling it on Twitter. And that's not, they shouldn't be that way. So I think this is a great move. It could have been done earlier, but hey, it's here now and let's use it. Yeah. What sort of things are we going to get from this dashboard that we haven't got uh, previous to it, do you think? Well, first of all, again, it's uh, easily accessible, and you can kind of get an idea of exactly what's happening when the government is making uh, announcements. There's going to be something there that you can look at uh, right in front of you. You can see the trends. You can see, because uh, we talk a lot about the daily case rates. These sound really, uh, you know, uh, concerning sometimes. But then if you look at the, the rate over the last couple of weeks, you can visually see that, look, things might be slowing down. So it just gives us some more information to use, process, and give us some more context. All right. Meantime, doctor, outside our province, our neighboring province of Manitoba, Winnipeg there is uh, spiking, and their premier, Brian Pallister, actually used the word uh, curfew yesterday, that the government is considering uh, curfews for people. Would that be effective, do you think, just medically speaking, in bringing the the number down? A A lot of people think that that's maybe a bridge or a step too far for the government mandating you be home at a certain hour. 
Yeah, and uh, curfews have been used um, uh, around the world, uh, for, uh, most famously in uh, Victoria, the Melbourne area in, uh, in Australia. And the thing is, yes, this certainly does make a difference. It's a bit of a what I would call a draconian measure, but uh, it uh, significantly reduces contacts with people. But, yeah, I agree with you. It's a, when you. Once you start going there, it's a bit of a step in a direction, a lot of power being given to the police. I just think that having that sort of enforcement it makes me uncomfortable, but it, sometimes it is necessary, especially with what's happening there right now. All right. With Winnipeg considering tightening restrictions and a possible cur- curfew, Ottawa, the nation's capital, their top doc was out yesterday saying, quote, it's time to learn to live with COVID. So it sounds as if, uh, Dr. Chakrabarty, we're talking about two different approaches here. Do you favor one o- over the other? Is uh, one better than the other when it comes to dealing with uh, COVID uh, moving forward? Yeah, and, and, you know, uh, to, to not be misunderstood, I definitely think that we need to do things to mitigate the risk as much as possible. But I think what's different is that you got to look at the, the unique circumstances of where you are. Right? Obviously, Winnipeg is in a phase of exponential growth, and their healthcare system right now is quite stressed, whereas things are getting better in Ottawa. And I think that it's important for us to look at the special circumstances and uh, respond there. So what's good for Ottawa right now is not good for Winnipeg, and it might be different later on. You always have to look at the data on the ground at the time you're doing it. All right. Is that what the government is now referring to, the provincial government, as a surgical uh, approach? And can that uh, work? And will this new framework give us that uh, ability where we can now assign uh, different color codes to different uh, regions and uh, not kind of more of a blanket policy or, you know, again, using a scalpel instead of maybe a sledgehammer? Absolutely, and I think that's what we have to live with. We're not going to be able to get our numbers down to zero like they had in New Zealand and Australia and certain parts. It's just not possible here. And I think that you, the next thing you want to do is try to have the most focused thing possible. Occasionally, you do have to use a sledgehammer, but the point is to have um, you know, measured force based on what the, the regional circumstances are. I do think this can work, but you really have to have all the parts of the machine working, including contact tracing, which has been working a lot of parts of Ontario, for example. But when it's it's not working, you're flying blind, and you might have to use something a bit more blunt. All right, Dr. Suman Chakravati, really appreciate the time as always, uh, Doctor. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Take care. You as well. And just a reminder that you can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 1 till 3 Eastern. Just tune in at 640toronto.com. Also, find us on Spotify, search my name, Jeff MacArthur, or download us wherever you find your favorite podcasts.